Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve others sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturday at 5.30 and Sunday at 9 and 10.30. Throughout the disarray of history, the church has been anchored by creed, a set of core teachings that produces holiness, harmony, and hope. In this series, we will reflect on the essential teachings of Christianity, pursuing questions like, can God be known? Who is Jesus Christ? Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the church? We believe that time spent in reflection on the essentials will become more than knowing doctrine. It will be time invested in knowing God himself. Well, good morning. Uh, anyone excited for the series Essentials? I feel like as I've talked to, okay, a couple, yeah, a couple. Um, I feel like as I've talked to people over the, oh, Tim, holding that hand proud, love it. Uh, I feel like as I've talked to a few people uh, over the last weeks knowing the series is coming, it seems like there's some excitement about getting into the, the roots of what we believe, the depths of the essentials. Um, so I'm really excited to, to get to kick off this series. I do apologize for my voice. I've been fighting a, a cold or allergies or something all week, and so I know it's a little raspy. Because uh, you can have spring or you can breathe, but you can't have both, right? Amen? Okay. Um, so I do apologize for that. But as we get started with essentials, would love for you to take a look at this uh, graph, and if you feel like you have an idea of what this is depicting or what this is telling us, would love for you to just shout it out. <clears throat> uh, just a small hint, red-blue might be, be part of the equation. Politics, okay, yeah. So someone last night said Congress, which I thought was a very clever guess. Uh, politics, this is a representation uh, and a map of every Twitter account um, separated by affiliation politically, and then uh, showing and mapping the interactions of the two kind of parties. And basically what it's showing us is that on Twitter, at least, uh, there's this huge echo chamber where blue team is barely interacting at all with red team, and red team is barely interacting at all with blue team which I don't know about you, but that feels like a very accurate depiction of our kind of current moment in our society. We're very polarized, and it seems like there's two echo chambers and not very many people are connecting or talking to one another. Bill Bishop, he wrote this book uh, called The Big Sort. And in this book, uh, the subtitle of it is Why the Clustering of Like-Minded America is Tearing Us Apart. And basically what he's come to find is that Americans are not just divided politically or ideologically, but those things are actually bleeding over into geography. That, that Americans are actually moving to cities and states that better reflect their political values. They want to live in spaces that vote and look like them. And, and it actually is bleeding even into our relationships. And he, he says it goes further that not only are we moving to places uh, where people vote like us and think like us and believe like us, but that we are actually even cutting out of our lives people who relationally, uh, we've been in relationship with and yet don't believe or think like us. And, and maybe you've felt that, maybe you felt that tension uh, over family holidays or when you're meeting with people or, or just, you know, having coffee, whatever it might be. We are in a space where our culture is deeply divided, deeply polarized, and it seems like politics trumps everything else. 
And when Larry and I were last year mapping out where we wanted to go for the year, we, we always meet around October, November to talk about the series and the books that we want to teach through. This map, this idea of polarization was, was kind of on the forefront of our mind because the question for the church is how do we transcend the politics of our day? How do we transcend the political division or just all of the division that we experience, the polarization that is going on in our culture? How do we transcend that? The answer is the essentials. The essentials, the core tenets of our faith that we believe hold us to the center and allow us to present an alternative community to the world. One that's not dominated by ideologies or politics, but something that's transcendent and above those things. Because at its core, the essentials, what they help us do is they, they help unify the church around the things that the church has always said are true. The essentials aren't just a, a series of truths or doctrines that we hold to to say, you're outside and we're inside, but to say, this is who we are and this is who we have always been. To follow Jesus means to hold and cling to these things and for a community to be unified around those things. But secondly, not only does it anchor us to that truth and, and unify us, it also helps us in the, the midst of constantly changing culture and uh, think pieces and opinions and viewpoints and, and all of the different ways that culture and tides shift throughout history and in our moment to, to cling to something that's above and beyond even those things. Because what has always been true of the church is that we come together around the core essential doctrines of our faith and allow the secondary and tertiary things to be those and not become primary. We hold fast to the primary and agree to disagree on the secondary. But as we approach the truth, and as we come to the essentials, one hesitation, if you will, that I have about, about this kind of exercise is that what I often see in the church and in Christians and even within myself is that as we come to know what's true, I, I think we would all agree, right, that, that following Jesus should make us more humble as people. And yet what often happens is when we have a relationship with the truth, the more we grasp certainty, often the more arrogant and prideful we become. The, the actual inverse of what's supposed to happen in our lives takes place. And we grasp a hold of the truth, but, but we weaponize the truth. And we use the truth to draw boundaries and lines and say who's in, who's out, who we're against, and who we're for. And, and I think what's important is, is as we enter into this series, we have to have what A.W. Tozer called a gentle dogmatism. That we approach the truth, yes, and we grab a hold of it, and we say this is what we believe. But we do so gently and humbly. I love the story of this old, wise, and theological professor, and he was at a seminary, and if you've ever been in that kind of environment, or maybe it's even a class within the church, there's one particular type of person, it's a caricature, but there's one particular type of person that's always in those spaces, theological classes, and I call them theobros, and it's a weird mix between like a frat boy and a theologian, and somehow they like blended together, and it's just this kind of, if I'm honest, this is me being judgmental, and Jesus can, can help me with this in, in my own life, but it, it's kind of the the, the person that they're just a bad person and all they do is fight about theology and they want to argue about theology and they have all these conversations and it just looks like there's so much anger about theology and they want to make sure everybody thinks the way they do. 
Theobros. You can take that and do with it what you will. But in this class, this theologian, he's, he's teaching this class, and it's one of those class periods where everyone is arguing and fighting about what's true and disagreeing with each other. The class has gotten away from me. Finally, he gets so, so frustrated that he just stop, stop. And he says, one thing that I have learned in my years of following Jesus and teaching theology and, and teaching truth is that at any given point in time, I have to reconcile with the fact that, that likely 80% of what I believe about God is wrong. Do we have that kind of humility? That 80% of what we might think about God has the potential to be wrong. I love the story of Karl Barth, who, when he completed his church dogmatics, which you have to understand, is this is a 12 million word document that he wrote explaining who God is and our relationship to him. 12 million words. Someone asked him when he completed this, this massive work, what he felt like, or, or if he felt accomplished, or, or what that experience was like, and he, he just basically said, after thinking a moment, that, you know, compared to what the angels in heaven know now, and what I will one day know, it's waste paper. Think about that. 12 million words of theology. His entire life's work summarized as waste paper. If one of the most brilliant minds the world has ever known thinks his thoughts on God are waste paper, potentially we could have the humility to say, yeah, there are some things in this series that are, are, are essential, yes, but there's still an element of mystery about them. See, what I believe is that all knowledge about God pre-heaven, before heaven, is just preliminary. And so we have to have an open hand and a humility as we engage with one another in our small groups and the different places that we have these conversations. Because when you are dealing with an infinite, transcendent God, we have to recognize that we are not him. And if we think we have a hold of him, if we think we've grasped him, then we actually don't know the God that we think we do. Because he's above and beyond. And so as we enter this series on essentials, I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're coming back to church and you've been wrestling with your faith. Or maybe you would say that you don't really have a faith. You hope there's some sort of, of God in the world and, and you're curious and you're searching and you're longing. Then I would say this series, Essentials, is for you. Let's explore together belief in, in who we believe God is. And maybe some of you, you've grown up in the church and you've had a religious background and, and you've even been very dedicated and involved in the church, but you found yourself over this season kind of in a place where, where you're wrestling and questioning and doubting. And the answers that the church has always given about certain things I don't really satisfy the longings in your heart and soul and mind the way they used to. And you're wondering if God is maybe has something more for you. I say this series, Essentials, is for you. I know some of us in this room, and actually I wouldn't put myself in this case, but some in this room, uh, I, you're in a space where you've done your wrestling, you've done your searching, you've done your doubting, and, and you just want a, a deeper walk with God and a reminder of the things that you've believed and held to throughout your life. This series is for you. But may we come to this series with humility and unity, understanding who the church is and who it's always been, and yet carry that message and that truth with humility and love. So as we jump in, would you please pray with me as we ask God to, to join us in this journey. Heavenly Father, we come before you and, and we do, God, we ask for humility as we engage with the deep truths about who you are. We recognize that you are transcendent and all-knowing and, and in many ways unapproachable. 
And yet, God, we would ask that you meet each and every one of us in this space, no matter where we are at on our faith journey, no matter if we have felt close to you or distant to you, or if we're not even really sure who you are or if you exist or if you even know us. God, I pray that you would meet us in this space with the deep, deep truth of who you are and how you want to be in relationship with us. That that would form us and shape us, not just as individuals, but as a community committed to following you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. So to kick off this series, we are going to be looking at uh, God the Father. Most series on essentials begin with some sort of conversation around God the Father. And there's a quote that you're probably familiar with that oftentimes people talk about when they come to God the Father. And it's a quote from A.W. Tozer when he wrote his book, Knowledge of the Holy. He, He begins his book with this concept. He says that what comes into your mind when you think of God is the most important thing about you. Now, I'll be honest, I don't actually know that I agree with him, if I'm I'm just being completely honest. I I think it's an important thing. I don't know that it's the most important thing, but I do agree that it's, it's a big question. It's a very important question. It's a good question. And so I would ask you as we start this journey of looking at God the Father, what comes into your mind when you think of God? And I would actually ask us to pause, to reflect, and to think about that for a moment. What emotion wells up within your heart and within your soul? What thoughts come into your mind? When you think of God, are you filled with joy or fear, awe, love? Does it bring about some sense of shame? Do you you get this deep feeling that you potentially need to, to be doing better or perform better? Does it bring about a desire within you to hide? Do you get a sense of peace and comfort? Is the God of your mind glorious or grim? See, I don't know about you, but when it comes to to God, I often feel like I have a very complicated relationship with the image and the the mental picture, the functional view of God that I have in my mind. It, It feels like between media and church and family background and tradition and my own experience, all of these things come together and there's a puzzle piece I'm supposed to put together, but it always ends up with a blurry image that I can't quite make out and feel like I can't quite grasp. And the question for us today is, where do you even begin to start a conversation about who God is? Well, thankfully, we can fall on church history because typically when a conversation about who God is begins, when the churches try to to cling to the essentials about who God is, they often start in a very similar place. And, And they start with two attributes of God that can be kind of encompassing of a lot of attributes of God. But the two attributes where where church history usually begins is with God's imminence and his transcendence. When we say that God is imminent, we're talking about the reality that God is present in time and space, that he is near to us in an intimate way. It's the idea that God comes down, is in relationship with his creation and his people, and knows us intimately. And when we talk about God's transcendence, we're essentially saying that that God is exalted, that he's above, that he's beyond, that that he's even beyond our understanding or our knowing or our comprehension. That there, there are elements of God where he is unknowable and unapproachable. He is so infinite and transcendent that we can barely even begin to grasp who he is. And for God, both of these attributes are held in perfect tension and unity. There is no tension for him. This is how he exists. But for us and our view of God, 
There's often a tension in the relationship between his imminence and his transcendence. And you can see here from even the Lord's Prayer when Jesus teaches us how we should talk to God. He says, God, our Father, the imminence, the closeness, the intimacy in heaven, transcendence, unapproachables. You can't buy a ticket to go see God. He's beyond us. And the same thing is true in the creeds. It, it reiterates this idea that God is imminent and intimately involved in our lives and yet transcendent and beyond our comprehension. And the challenge for us is, is holding these within tension, within our own views of God. And I think the better we are able to grasp that God is both imminent and transcendent, the better we will be able to live in relationship with him the less likely we are to create a God in our own image, and the more likely we are to be able to relate to him as he desires. And so today we're going to look at these two concepts, the imminence and the transcendence of God. We're going to talk about some of the implications of overvaluing one over the other. And then throughout the series on essentials, we don't want this to just be a, a theoretical or, or a, an abstract practice, but we actually want to talk about practices, ways that we can engage with these beliefs that can ground us in our faith. And so we'll look at a few practices that can help us hold this idea of transcendence and imminence in place. And so to begin, we're going to look at God's imminence. And I've pulled, there's numerous passages that we could have looked at, but I've pulled one from, from the Psalm, Psalm 139, that helps give us a picture of what it means when we say God is imminently present in our lives. The psalmist says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. For some of us, that's kind of a frightening thought. <laughs> it says, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. You see, what this scripture is trying to show us is that God is incredibly present in our lives that his hands are upon us, that he knows our thoughts. He knows when we get up and when we lie down. He knows the, the meetings that you have this week that you feel nervous about. He knows that, that thing that you've been carrying that you've wanted to have a conversation with but have been too afraid to. He knows the deepest longings and desires of your heart because he is imminently present in your life. You know, it struck me, I, I was a youth pastor for about 10 years, and as I've seen a, a number of students grow up, and, and some of them have, have walked away from the faith. And one of the things that's always struck me is, is there's a certain trend with a number of, of students that they kind of go to this mystical spirituality, where, where God is, is really just the universe. It's this idea of God is transcendent, but God is just in all things and of all things. And, and if I want to follow this God or this God is, is for me, he has good will and good intentions for me, but the universe is random, so you can't really trust. I'm just always struck by this idea of, of giving yourself to the universe, opening yourself up to the universe and allowing the, the universe to give you good things and good vibes. And, and I'm not mocking any of that if that's where you find today. But, but what's always heartbreaking for me in those conversations with those students is what I think our culture and what many of us have done is we have trade this idea that God is imminent for something that is just very abstract, very removed, very aloof, very distant, very impersonal. 
And what scripture tries to tell us about the living God is that he is not distant. He is not aloof. He is imminently and intimately involved in every aspect of our lives. And when we talk of God's imminence, we're talking about God experiencing life with us. We're talking about the fact that, that God is loving and that, that he's characterized by intimacy with his people. But mostly we're talking about this idea and this image that God is father. When God wants us to understand our relationship with him, the, the kind of metaphor that he uses again and again and again is that he is our heavenly father. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, call upon your heavenly father. I love the way that Michael Reeves puts it in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. He says, since God is before all things a father and not primarily creator or ruler, all his ways are beautifully fatherly. It's not that this God does being father as a day job, only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. And it's not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top, which I'm not really sure what that image even means, but he is father all the way down. Thus, all he does, he does as father. That is who he is. He creates as father, and he rules as father. And that means the way he rules when we see that God rules in his creation and over his creation is most unlike the way any other God would rule over creation. Only as a kind and loving father will we be moved to delight in his providence. We might acknowledge that the rule of some heavenly policeman was just, but we could never take the delight in his regime as we can take delight in the tender care of our Father. I love that image because it is showing us that, that God's eminence, what, what you have to realize about God's eminence, is it means there is no situation you will walk into this week. There is no conversation that you will have. There is no temptation that you will face. There's no hardship or suffering that you will endure where God is not intimately present in your life. God hears the cries of your hearts. He knows the desires of our souls and the longings that we have in life. And he is present with us in those spaces. To put it into perspective, there are 7 billion people on the face of the planet today. And what scripture is saying is that God knows each and every one of their stories intimately and in detail as he knows your own. God feels our elation and our joy and our delight. He knows when we are heartbroken and weeping. He is present in all of it. And while this is a beautiful truth that we have to cling to, one of the, the, the things that I often see happen in our relationship with God is, is there are those among us, and I would put myself in this camp at times, that, that we can come to a place where we so overemphasize God's eminence, his intimacy, his love, his care, that we inadvertently make his transcendence small. And in doing so, we actually make God very small in our lives. There's a great book by a guy named Sky Jatani, and he wrote this book called Wit. And in this book, I would encourage you to get it. It's a beautiful book, but he basically says many of us interact with God and we basically have four postures before God. We live life over God or life under God or life for God or life from God. And I'll explain what each of those is in a moment. But when we talk about eminence being overemphasized above transcendence, where we hyper-focus on God's love and his generosity and his goodness, what can often happen for us 
is that we come to a dysfunctional view of God where we begin to live life over God. And what I mean by that is when we say live life over God, God is so loving, so kind, so gracious, so good that he actually doesn't have anything to say about how I live my life. I mean, he's so loving, so good. He could never be a a God who commands me to do right or wrong or tell me how I should live my life. And in fact, if there are any kind of rules, he's so good and so loving that it's not that big a deal if I break them. This is a dated reference, but if you grew up in the, in the 90s or the early 2000s, then you're probably with me. Anybody remember the movie Mean Girls and the, the cool mom? Right, so um, Leslie, no, not Leslie, nope, that's what she played on Parks and Rec. Amy Poehler, she's a cool mom in Mean Girls. And basically all these teenage girls come over to her house, and, and this is the actual line she says. She says, hey, just so you know, there's no rules in this house. I, I, I'm, a, I'm not like a regular mom, I'm a cool mom. And then she gives like the cheesiest wink in the history of the world. Because she's a cool mom, there's no rules. And when we do life over God, when we emphasize his eminence over his transcendence, we turn God into the cool mom who has nothing to tell us about how we live our lives. And we end up living, believing God exists, but living as if he doesn't exist and he has nothing to say about how we live our lives. And this has been going on since the beginning of humanity. We're told in the Garden of Eden that the, the first sin was humanity choosing and deciding good and evil for ourselves and, and deciding good and evil, right and wrong, apart from God. And so many of us live our life daily with this kind of posture before God. I'll decide what's right or wrong for me and how I feel. God doesn't actually have something to tell me about how I should live. But when we live life over God, we need to realize that it is entirely possible to live if he is not even existing in our life. And secondly, this overemphasis of eminence over transcendence can lead us to a place where we, we kind of come to live life from God. It's kind of the prosperity gospel where the sole purpose of God's existence is to make sure you have everything you want and desire and need that all of your needs and happiness is met in him. And so he just gives you everything that your heart is longing for. He makes sure you have the great family. He makes sure you have the cool car. He makes sure you get all the stamps and your passport that you want. I mean, he just provides all of these good gifts and blessings. And the truth is, when we come to this place where we live life from God, is we come to a place where, where we desire all the gifts of God, but want nothing to do with God himself. It's the prosperity gospel. I don't don't know if you realize this, but most sociologists agree that that the average American daily sees between 4,000 and 10,000 advertisements. That means 4,000 to 10,000 messages a day telling us what we need, what we don't have, how we're not enough, where we need more, where we need new. And this kind of mindset fits perfectly with life from God. Because if we're constantly getting all these messages about all the stuff we need, then wouldn't it be awesome to have the the genie in the sky, the genie of Aladdin? You've never had a friend like him. He'll just give you everything you need. And so we take this posture with God where, where we really live in this space where we just think God exists to make all of your dreams come true. And I have to caveat this with some of us have fallen into this posture. And to be honest with you, it's not your fault. Our, our faith traditions, our church backgrounds, our families of origin, our, our church that we're currently in maybe has sent these messages inadvertently or intentionally to you. And so we have this dysfunctional view of God where we live life over God or want things from God. 
And I'm just struck by the story of the, the prodigal son. Because when Jesus tells a story about how we are supposed to relate to God, he tells a story of two brothers. And he tells a story of a younger brother who comes to his father and says, Father, I'm tired of living under your house and your rules. I want to do life my way and do whatever I want. But in order to do that, I need you to give me my inheritance and the blessing and give me all of your wealth. See, the prodigal son, he, he was living in such a way where, where he comes to say that I don't need you, Father. I want to do life my way. I want to live how I want to live. I just need your stuff, your gifts. He didn't respect his father enough to actually do what he said and didn't respect his father enough to be with him, just wanted the wealth that he could provide. And I wonder for how many of us today we have this posture before God. We've, we've so overemphasized his imminence and intimacy in our lives that, that we don't respect God enough to do what he says and that we think God just exists to make us happy and let us do whatever we want. Which is why we need to have an understanding of, of this tension we feel between imminence and transcendence. Because while God is loving and intimately involved in our lives, he is also transcendently above and beyond and ruler of all things. I love the way that uh, David puts it in a prayer in First Chronicle, uh, Chronicles, if we have that uh, scripture. Uh, David says this in a prayer to God. He says, praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. You can feel the transcendence. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head above all. And he goes on to say, wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. When we are talking about God's transcendence, we are talking about the fact that he is sovereign, ruler, and king over all things. We are entering the realm of mystery and the fact that God is unapproachable and there are, there are elements of him that are completely unknowable and incomprehensible to us. That, that there, any time in scripture people encounter God, most of them just fall down on their face as if they're dead because he is so transcendent, so terrifying, so immaculate that words cannot describe him. And when we talk of God's uh, existence as transcendent, we're talking about the fact that, that he's creator, that, that God created things out of nothing, with nothing more than a spoken word. He brought the entire universe into existence. And scripture tells us that that didn't even make him tired or fatigue him. He is so powerful with one word, he can speak creation into existence and not exhaust himself. I don't have that kind of energy. I mean, just this last week, we had this problem in our kitchen sink where, or our, our bathroom sink where a clog turned into a broken pipe. Uh, I broke the pipe trying to fix it. And then that turned into an explosion of water that turned into needing to replace the vanity, new countertop, would be total gut job on this one thing. It was exhausting. I had to go to Home Depot like 17 times just to get the right parts, no matter, right? Every project takes at least like 15 trips to Home Depot to complete. Amen. Okay, thank you. Okay, I was like, Am I, oh, I just maybe was too vulnerable, and I, I'm bad at this. All right, yeah, and, and it's just exhausting. I was up until like midnight every night trying to fix this thing for a couple of days. I can't replace my kitchen sink without exhausting myself. God speaks the universe into existence with one word and does not fatigue himself. Are you kidding me? 
that kind of power is unbelievable. When we talk about God's transcendence, we're also talking about his holiness. The fact that God is completely separate from his creation. Though he's eminently involved, he is unlike anything else in his creation. That he is untainted and unmarred by sin and brokenness. He is perfect. It's amazing to me that in Scripture, we're never told that God is love, love, love. And we're never told that God is just, just, just. But throughout Scripture, we are constantly told that God is holy, holy, holy. I mean, the stress and and the tension the authors try to bring to the text to say God is not like you and deserves your respect. He is holy and transcendent and above all. He is sovereign ruler of all things. He is completely separate and apart from his creation. But just as some of us can can fall into a habit of hyper-focusing on God's imminence, there are some of us that can hyper-focus on his transcendence. And it also leads to a dysfunctional view of God. We come to a place where God is so holy, so so transcendent, so awesome, so mighty, so incredible. We overemphasize that and we think he's distant or aloof or not a part of our lives. We, We can stumble into this kind of cynical Christian deism. Or yeah, God is real and he exists and he's out there, but, but he's not a part of my life in any way, shape, or form. And, and I think when we come to a place where we overemphasize God's transcendence, we can come to a space where we begin to live life under God. And many of you are familiar with this posture before God where you go through life and you think your role in life is to appease God and to make him happy and make sure you follow all the rules, to make sure that, that he's happy enough with you that he will bless you. It's kind of the ancient mindset that if you do good things, God will send rain, and if you do bad things, then he might curse you. And so you go through your whole life thinking God is mad at you, living your life under God, thinking you have to follow all these rules, all these commands, and if you don't, God's going to strike you and zap you with a lightning bolt and curse you. It's amazing to me how many times this way of thinking just creeps into my heart and my soul. I mentioned the kitchen sink that kind of blew up on me, or the, gosh, the bathroom sink that blew up on me. I hope that's not foreshadowing that the kitchen sink's going to go bad, but the, the bathroom sink. But that was like one of 15 things that happened in our family's life. It's just one of those weeks where it's just life is happening, right? But one thing after another goes wrong. People are sick, and then the dryer breaks, and the sink breaks, and then you got people coming, and then there's just a number of things, and it's just life. But in the posture of life under God, you begin to ask like, hey, God, are we okay? Like, Like, is all this happening because you're upset with me? It it kind of feels like if you've been in a relationship, friend or spouse or whoever, they're sending you signals that something's not all right, but you just don't know what, and you're trying to figure it out. And that's what life under God feels like, is you were constantly trying to figure out, are all these bad things happening? You're looking in the signs and the tea leaves to make sure that you are making God happy enough that he can be happy with you. I mean, it's the posture that that people had in Jesus' day where they come to Jesus and they ask, hey, why was this person born blind? Was it because of the sin of his father or because of his own sin? And it's this idea that all of the things that happen in our life, good or bad, are a result of our actions before God. God is so distant and aloof and uninvolved in our life, he could never enjoy us or delight in us or want to be with us if we are not living up to his standards and his rules and his commands. 
The second posture that I think many of us have when we overemphasize God's transcendence is that, that we begin to live life for God. And I think the church, this is another area where the church, we just got to own, we tell people this a lot. But in life for God, we basically say that, that God is so transcendent, so above, that, that you just exist as a servant to do stuff for him. God just wants to use you to accomplish his will in the world. And you need to make sure that following God means that you see his justice and his righteousness and his rule come to earth. And you need to make sure that, that his rules are followed. And you need to make sure that, that you're doing things to change the world and make it a better place than when you came into it. All in the name of God, because that's all he wants from you, is you to just do stuff and accomplish things. And so we live in this relationship with God where we think that God is so transcendent that, that we're not supposed to relate to him at all. We're just supposed to do stuff for him and make sure that we do it all perfectly in order for him to be in relationship with us. I'm reminded of the older brother in the prodigal story. If you remember, there's finally a moment where the younger brother, he, he comes and he has this like wake-up moment. And he thinks, oh, I'll go back to my father. This isn't working out. Doing things myself and doing things on my own. And just, I've wasted all of my father's gifts. And so he goes home and, and the father forgives him, runs to him, receives him, forgives him, and throws a big party. But the older brother, he's incredulous. He's so angry and bitter that his younger brother is welcomed back. And he, do you remember what he says? He says, look at me. I never left. Look at everything I've done for you. Look at all of the ways that I was faithful. See, some of us, we can come to a posture before God where we think God just wants us to do things. And, and we come to a posture before God that, that we're just supposed to accomplish things in the world. And, and what the older brother shows us is that it is very possible to do things for God and to miss the heart of our Father. We just miss it. And so I wonder for us today, if you find yourself in that place where, where you have so overemphasized God's transcendence that he wants nothing to do with you, where might God be calling you back into a relationship with him? See, I think there are a couple of practices that we can, we can hold to try to keep in tension this idea of God's transcendence and his imminence. Because at its heart, what we are understanding and learning about God is that, that God is so transcendent that, that Scripture tells us he names the stars by name, every one of them. God is so transcendent, he names the stars, and yet so imminent that he knows and cares for each and every sparrow. You see, what if the God we believe in is transcendent and powerful enough to worship fully and yet imminently and intimately present enough in our lives that he cares for who we are? And how do we hold those things in tension in our relationship with him? I think there's two practices that really help us hold these things in tension and help us to relate to a God who is both imminent and transcendent. And the first is if you find yourself in that camp where you've overemphasized, overstressed God's imminence in your life, and you see God as just a loving Father who just lets you do whatever you want or will give you whatever you need, my encouragement to you, my challenge to you would be to, to step into the practice of obedience to begin to realize that God is transcendent. He does have things to say about how you live your life and that following him means coming under his rule and reign and sovereignty and obeying him. It means bending the knee to him. 
And I'm fascinated. I, I, there's so many conversations that, that I think the church has about what we're supposed to do in church. And one of them that often comes up is how deep we're supposed to go in our preaching or in our Bible studies or that kind of thing. And I love this pastor. His, his name is Josh Howerton. He's in Dallas, Texas. No need to boo. He's a good person even though he lives in Texas. But he has this line where he talks about people will come to him and say, we just need to go deeper. We just need to make sure we get deeper. The truth is that most Christians are educated beyond their level of obedience. Our knowledge so often far outpaces our obedience to who Christ has called us to be. If we would just be obedient, our lives would change. I love Jackie Hill Perry. She's also a pastor from Texas. I'm quoting way too many people from Texas today. But she has this line about how she's never regretted being obedient to God. That resonates with me. I mean, and when I think about the things I regret in my life so often, it's because I have gone against the grain of the universe, the way God has established things, against his rule and reign. I've gotten splinters, and I'm filled with regret. I've never regretted following God's will for my life. And so I wonder for some of us today, is there anything in your life that you might be tolerating that is offensive and not pleasing to God? It could be intentionally or unintentionally. But is there anything that's offensive to God in relation to, to the way that you engage with entertainment or sexuality or finances or friendship or work or speech or justice or love for others or reconciliation or care for the poor that you need to bring back under God's rule and reign and sovereignty? And how can we step into obedience together to realize God is transcendent? For others of us, We've so overemphasized God's transcendence that he feels aloof and distant and removed from our life. And, and what we need to realize is that God does not want to be distant from us. That God's eminence means he wants to be in relationship with us. And, and so we need to grow in awareness of God's presence in our lives. Now, I was convicted this week that, that I'm a pastor and I come to church pretty much every day of the week. And it is still entirely possible for me to go through my entire day and not think about God or be aware of his presence in my life. And some of us need to step into this practice of awareness. And I think one of the ways we do that is through the practice of Sabbath, of taking away, stepping back from all we think we need to accomplish either for ourselves or for God and just be, to rest and to enjoy the good things that God has given us and recognize God wants to spend time with us. You know, oftentimes I'll talk to people and they'll say that, that they feel like God is distant in their life. And there are absolutely seasons of our life where God, it, it just feels like for whatever reason that he's removed his presence and we're going through a dark night of the soul. But when I begin those conversations with those people, when I begin the conversation with myself, if God begins to feel distant, as I often ask, is it possible that God is not distant, but that you are distracted? That you are too busy and noisy to hear the voice of God? I mean, we live in a world where we are constantly connected to messages and emails and priorities and work and hectic schedules and needs of our family and needs of, of the things that people have around us and ways that we engage with the world that we can forget to stop, pause, pull away, and that life is not about what we can do. And so we pull away to practice Sabbath to just simply be with God. I love the way that John Mark Comer puts it in his book, Garden City, about Sabbath. He says, that's why 
Sabbath is an expression of faith. Faith that there is a creator, notice the transcendence, and he's good, the eminence. We are his creation. This is his world. We live under his roof, drink his water, eat his food, breathe his oxygen. So on the Sabbath, we don't just take a day off from work. We take a day off from toil. We give him all our fear and anxiety and stress and worry. We let go. We stop ruling and subduing and we just be. We remember our place in the universe so that we never forget there is a God and I am not him. See, there is a transcendent, imminent God who wants to be in relationship with you. And when you look at the brothers from the prodigal story, that's what they missed. They thought their father existed in these different categories in this dysfunctional relationship, and all the father wanted was to be with his children. All God wants is to be with his sons and his daughters. The question for us is, do we want that? Do we want to be with God as he truly is, transcendent and imminent, with the respect and honor and worthy and exaltation that he is due, while also understanding that he is intimately connected to every aspect of our lives? Do we want that? Or do we want to continue with this dysfunctional view of God where we're constantly dissatisfied between the two? Do we want a relationship with a God who names the stars and knows the sparrows? I was reminded this week of a story of a, a pastor in New York City named Tyler Stanton. And he's a young pastor. And he tells this story of how one of the people from his church invited him to a, an AA meeting, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting with him one day. He wanted to, to see kind of what it was like to walk in his shoes. And so this pastor, Tyler, he goes with his friend and they, they go through the heart of New York City and they come to a church and they go down into this dingy old basement where it's standing room only, people there for the AA meeting. He says as it, as it begins, people begin sharing uh, their name and they identify as an alcoholic and then share the number of days that they've been there. But the way the, the, the meeting starts is people who are under 30 days of sobriety have to share first. And so someone stands up and says, my name is Jared. I'm an alcoholic 17 days sober. And then someone else stands up and says, my name is Steve and I'm 21 days sober. He says, as this is unfolding, there's a, a young kid that stands up. He couldn't have been older than 20. And, and this young kid, he, you can tell that he's nervous and he doesn't even know really what to say or what to do. He forgets to even share his name and all he says is, one day. And while all of the other people had kind of had a, a slow applause, it, it, this room just falls into silence because how do you respond? to a 20-year-old kid. I mean, how bad do things have to get? What point in your life do you have to be at that you would walk into a room of hundreds of strangers to say, I need help, and this is day one? And so there's just this silence. And then in the midst of the silence, it's broken by an old man across the room who stands up. And he begins making his way to this young kid, but he doesn't make his way through the aisles. He begins pushing people out of the way and, and stepping over rows of chairs to get to this kid. And when he comes face to face with him, he just takes him in an embrace and the boy breaks down, weeping and sobbing and shaking. And Tyler says in this moment, he has a picture of what 
our God must be like. Because it's one thing to, un- to see a-, a boy, a young man, struggling for sobriety, fighting his demons, and showing up and asking for help. It is completely another thing to be someone who is in the same shoes, who has walked that same road, to know what it's like to go out for drinks and wake up in an alley next to a dumpster. See, what if we have a God who is so imminently and intimately involved in our lives that he knows our pain and our suffering and our heartache because he was there present with us in those moments? And yet what if we have a God who is so transcendent and so strong that in our weakness, in our brokenness, as our world is falling apart, he is strong enough to hold all things together. That is what it means to hold this view of transcendence and imminence in tension. That we have a God who knows our wounds and our heartaches because he is present with us. And yet he is strong enough to bind those wounds and to bring healing to our lives that we cannot find in anything else. As we close today, we're going to sing a new song. And I would encourage whatever space you're in, whatever posture you have before God, whatever you came into this room with, I would encourage us in this moment to, to just reflect and have a conversation with God. What is your relationship to this God who is both transcendently above and beyond and yet imminently and lovingly present in our lives? What does it mean to relate to a God like that? How can we be in relationship with a God who names the stars and knows the sparrows? So if you would, pray with me.